Welcome, guys. It's it's great to be here with you. And over the last month, Pastor C has been leading us through a series called Jesus Church and looking at this whole thing of what Jesus Church looks like. Today, I get to take us to session four of that, which is it's the Christ-like family of God. Now, question for us. Is anybody here part of Jesus Church? I see a few hands. That's great. Now, in in saying all of this, we're not saying that we are solely and completely Jesus Church. No. Jesus Church is all over the world. It's in and through all different denominations because Jesus Church is the body of believers. Now, that means that I, being a believer, am part of Jesus Church. And that means that you, if you are a believer a Christian who's had their sins forgiven and knows Jesus as Lord and Saviour, you are part of Jesus' church. So, what does Jesus' church look like if it's meant to be the Christ-like family of God? Now, have you ever asked yourself this question? Is Jesus' church the hope of the world? Now, these notes were prepared by a guy called Pastor Bill Vasilakis, and this is something that he keeps on emphasizing in his church. And it's something that I hope you have heard before, and if not, I hope you take on today, that because I don't believe, I, I, I love my friend Cookie up here who's a maths teacher, but I don't believe kids understanding maths is the hope of the world. It's an important thing as part of that, absolutely. And I'm, I'm, I help him in some of his classes being a teacher's aide there, and it's great. But I do believe that the local church, Jesus' church, all over the world, is the hope of the world. Now, it's not to rag out on maths teachers. They're great work and doing good things, but um, <laughs> I believe it is. And today we're going to look at five different things that, Show us what Jesus' church, being the Christ-like family of God, looks like. Now, this whole series, the whole month, has been taking Paul's view of Jesus' church that we see in Ephesians chapter 4. And so just a couple of things we've already found in there. Um, It's the loving and united family. That Jesus' church is to celebrate the fact that we are different from each other, and yet we are one body. We don't all have to be cookie-cutted Christians, as we've heard Pastor Steve say. We are different. And in our differences, God has given us all different gifts. Each one of us, you have a gift from God. You might not know what it is, you might not be affirmed in expressing that, but you do have a gift from God that is given to you for the church. So, we have a diverse church that is a loving and united family that has different gifts and that those gifts are to serve others. Okay? This is some of the stuff we've already looked at. And another way of breaking down Ephesians 4 we see in verses 1 to 6 that we move from unity, 
which is the focus in those verses, to ministry in verses 7 to 12, and then today, today we get to focus on the fact that Jesus' church was created for maturity. So it's these next verses, 13 to 16, that we're going to be looking at. And um, let's start by reading them. If you've got them, go for it in your pads, tablets, Bibles. But if not, Ephesians chapter 4, 13 to 16 is up here. Until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature, the mature in the Lord, measuring up to the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole church fit together perfectly, as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing, full of love. So, there's a lot in those four verses. Um, We're going to look at it in in five different parts. And that's not number one, but anyway. Okay, I've, I've messed my headings up. Number one, Jesus' church is as his Christ, like family, is growing in our knowledge of Jesus and his teachings. Growing in our knowledge of Jesus. The first part of verse 13 said, until we all come to such a unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son. So, we've got to know him. Pretty simple, but surprisingly deep. It's growing in our convictions about Christ and his teachings as recorded in the four Gospels. We, as Jesus' church, have to be on the same page in our understanding about God's Son as God is. That's how God chose to reveal himself. So, that's why at Life Source we train our our, our preachers to always point us to the cross, to bring us to Christ. To, um, because he is central to our any sort of understanding of the Christian faith. There's, you just can't divorce Jesus from what we believe and how we should live. There's no separation. Now, this let me apply this understanding to one current thing, which is the whole issue of gay marriage. Now, some even some Christians are confused or or um, equivocating on this. Now, I'm going to ask your forgiveness. I'm going to read a bit of my stuff today because I do want to I do want to get it accurate to what I want to say. Why are we against the broadening the definition of marriage that has been the exclusive right of heterosexuals for thousands of years? As genuine Christ followers, we take the position that marriage is to be only between one man and one woman, and that is the best and safest place to raise the children of the next generation. Now, we as a CRC church are part of the CRC denomination, and 
as part of our core charter, which you can find on the stand at the back. One of these points is very specific and clear about what we believe marriage is. Which I think I have up here. Yes. The CRC Churches International understands that the biblical model of marriage is a lifelong, monogamous, legally performed marriage between a man and a woman in which there is constant love, continual care, mutual respect, godly order, submission, and sexual intimacy. In such a context, children may be born and raised in an atmosphere of loving care, godly training, and discipline. We uphold the family as the basic social unit of society. This is a strong position that has been part of our strong position for, for decades. It's not something we've reactionarily created um, to say, hey, let's think about this. No. Um, and because, why is that our strong position? Because we believe it is the strong position presented in the Bible since day dot. And because of that, we can firmly stand on it. We believe this without, be, without being hateful towards homosexuals who are also loved by God and Jesus died on the cross to save them as well as ourselves. And we firmly believe this too. Let's remind ourselves that all sins are condemned by the scriptures and homosexual activity is just one of many. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and to 11 tells us, you can read it for yourself, that thieves, adulterers, idolaters and drunkards, extortionists and slanderers are equally condemned, along with immoral heterosexuals and immoral homosexuals. So to answer my question, why are we against homosexuals being given the right to marry? It is simply because Jesus told us to stick to God's creative pattern that marriage is to be a loving union between only one man and one woman for life. Now, I want to look at this passage where Jesus talks about marriage. Matthew 19, 4-6. Jesus is quite clear in what he says here. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? By asking this question, Jesus is affirming the Genesis account. And so we have to see God's plan in Genesis as relevant for us today. Because Jesus decided it was relevant 2,000 years ago, and so it is just as relevant for us now. And then he quotes Genesis and said, For this reason, man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. But interestingly, Jesus then adds to, to Genesis in saying, So they are, now long, they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined, let man not separate. Now, this issue of gay marriage is one of several moral and ethical matters that are popular in present society. 
they run quite counter to what we see the gospel presents. That biblically grounded and submitted Christ followers, we're taught that we have no alternative but to follow our Lord. That's why we call him Lord. And we shouldn't use that. Because of because we're Christians, we've been around church for a long time, We, Jesus Christ is Lord, just runs off our lips very easily. But let us consider the meaning of that statement when we call him our Lord. Jesus' positions can be difficult to understand, hard to follow, and incredibly inconvenient or even unpopular. However, if we really believe that as God's Son, He is the way, the truth, and the life, which we read in John 14.6, we must align ourselves to Him and His authoritative words in all matters that have to do with our beliefs and practices. So, in becoming the Christ-like family of God, as we come to a knowledge of Jesus and his teachings, we've got to come with a submissive attitude in our hearts. Before I finish my comments on gay marriage, let us find two action points for us. Two things that I believe are clear and pertinent for us today. Number one, let's hate sin. All sin is destructive and causes pain. The loving thing is never to excuse or accept sin, no matter how humanly understandable. Now, in saying let's hate sin, let us also remember that the primary sin, which Scripture constantly refers to so much more, is actually unbelief. John 3, 18 and 19 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the Son, in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. So, belief is the primary one that we see repeated so so much in throughout all of scripture our second action point our first is hate sin and in all its forms because in whatever manner it is destructive it is painful even if you a white lie or a this or a that every form of sin is actually destructive whether it's for yourself or others our second action point, of course, is to love sinners. And this is something we need to hear. Churches in the past have not always loved well, especially homosexuals or same-sex attracted Christians. We are called to love. It is our calling and our challenge as Jesus' church, to represent him well. Now, I just quoted John 3, 18 and 19, but we have to remember they're preceded by John 3, 16 and 17. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Hear Jesus' heart in that. Now, was Nicodemus' sin Jesus' primary priority? Or the woman caught in adultery? No. He loved them first. After that came their faith and transformation. Not if, but when, people who are of same-sex attracted come in to this building, it is my prayer that they will find and feel no double standard. We don't make the poor man sit on the floor and give the rich man a chair. How can we welcome a liar, but not someone who is same-sex attracted? Jesus' church, as his Christ-like family, is growing in our experience of Jesus. So, we're growing in our knowledge of him and his teaching. We're growing in our experience of him. Ephesians 4.13, the second part of it, says that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the fullness of Christ. It is not enough only to be informed about Jesus of the Bible or to have an intellectual knowledge of him. A growing Christian has a personal knowledge which involves intimate relationships with him. When you really get to know Jesus, you can't just can't help but allow him who now indwells you through the Holy Spirit to take control over every aspect of your life. This is our challenge. Uh, this is how, sorry, this is how our character grows to reflect his. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is defined in Galatians Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. I think I got them. Anyway, um, it's about our nature, it, the nature of Jesus being built into us. We align our lives to Jesus by prayerfully applying his promises, carefully obeying his commands, exercising the beautiful prayer language of speaking in tongues, being connected with Christ followers in a biblically grounded church and serving others with the gifts he graces us with, we will grow rapidly and become more like Christ. Paul was desperate for people to become like Christ and for the churches that he wrote to, such as that in Galatia. 4.19, he says, My dear children, for who I am in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Christ being formed in me is a long and slow process, but it's a growing one. And there's our challenge. It's Jesus' church to be growing in the Lord. Last week we, all, we heard as well, from Pastor Steve, Paul quoted saying, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. 
in Philippians chapter 3. Can't you feel the depth of Paul's willingness to grow himself and his longing to experience more and more of Christ? May this be our continual cry as we, well, as we pursue Christ with all our hearts and allow him to be the controlling authority and influence in our lives. Jesus' church, as the Christ-like family, is growing in our experience of God. Jesus' church, as the Christ-like family, is growing in our biblical stability. We will no longer be immature, says verse 14, like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. This would be uh, some, so, this would be funny, and I'm going to explain a couple of different heresies briefly that are so laughable except the fact that they've caused so much pain to so many people across so many years. There is a deception that asserts that if you're not water baptised, you'll be bound for hell and condemnation. There's one verse that they use to promote this, where Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptised will be saved. Mark chapter 16, verse 15 and 16. But they forget the second part of that verse. And the whole testimony of the rest of Scripture, which says, but whoever does not believe is condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned. This false teaching is demolished when you realize that there are lots of other verses linking belief, repentance, obedience to, salva to salvation. And, and in water baptism, there are verses that will link it to salvation, but there is not one verse linking the lack of water baptism with damnation and hell. It is rejecting Christ and refusing his loving offer of forgiveness and deliberately disobeying Jesus' law of love that will send us to hell. Nobody eliminates... If, you, if you're trying to get rid of rats, you don't... Um, you don't the rat bait is used because it's something that they like to eat. It's designed to be tasty. And so if the enemy is trying to get rid of Christians, he's going to shape it in a way or bring a, bring a truth in a way that looks and sounds good for Christians. We need to be aware of this. We need to make sure we as Jesus' church are being biblically stable so that we, as good people, aren't naively devoured by these false teachings. There's another troubling one that says uh, about being baptized for a loved one so that they can, who's already died, so that they can go to heaven. Again, it's based on the wrong understanding of one individual verse. 
to formulate our biblical, our basic Christian beliefs and the main tenets of our faith. For centuries, biblical scholars have used the principles of context, what's around that verse, not just what's that individual sentence, what's the rest of it saying, as well as other scriptures as rules to establish our universally accepted Christian teachings. When you combine these key principles with the close examination of the meaning of the words in their original languages and the cultural, social and historical backgrounds of passages being looked at, we can eliminate these false doctrines and get clarity on the timeless and essential truths that are relevant for every day and age. There's another one that says that um, you have to be speaking in tongues to be saved. We are a Pentecostal church, firmly believing that speaking in tongues is the evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But we are very unequivocal in saying that as we receive salvation, we are indwelt with the Spirit. But that has nothing to do... Any, We will have nothing to do with anyone who teaches you must be speaking in tongues to be saved. Because it is wrong. It has hurt, caused pain and hurt in churches all over the world. Again because of people misusing good verses that are in the scripture to build up those who believe. Baptism, like repentance and water baptism, is often linked to God's save sorry, baptism in the spirit, like repentance and water baptism, is often linked to God's saving work in Christ. But again, there is not one passage linking the lack of baptism in the spirit and speaking in tongues with damnation and hell. The best answer to some of these deceptions, like water baptism being essential for salvation as well as tongues, would be the man that Jesus was hanging on a cross beside. And he said, today I'll see as... Well, Jesus didn't say to him, son, you'll be saved and have a place in heaven with me if you can somehow find a way of getting down off this cross. Get someone to baptize you in water, lay hands on you and receive the gift of tongues and then help you back up onto the cross. These are farcical her heresies. They have caused a lot of damage to the ill-informed and gullible who are not trained in how to correctly handle God's word. Truth. Now, there's a few things that we need to be careful of in spotting and coming under and being aware of these sorts of teachings. Those are the far out, the extreme ones. There's a lot of other truths that I call truths because some of them are truths that have a misplaced emphasis. When you focus too much on one thing, or they might be a half-truth. As I said, the rat poison wants to be tasty to rats. But these are some tips that we can ha be aware of so that we'll be careful not to get be taken by them. 
Be worried about self-promoting apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers who set themselves up as authoritative gurus who attract and deceive people into following them. Firstly, if someone is not accountable to any responsible denominational family or a covering of board that can correct or even sack them, then they are a law unto themselves or can easily become that. Second, the people who come under their influence are encouraged to break fellowship with their existing churches and, author and, um, and local churches or previous movement that they were part of. It's conflicting loyalty. So if someone is telling you to break away from the churches that you've been in, this is a, to follow some far out, unaccountable thing, we have a problem. Thirdly, their leader gradually becomes more cultic and it's about a personal following of the leader instead of our personal following of Christ. It's got to be about each of us following Christ himself. Fourthly, they have a spiritual emphasis or some new teaching that's not satisfied with the gospel of grace, the new creation, transformative message the precious gifts of the Spirit, and so other, so, and others of these core truths. We believe that the Word of God is sufficient. It is sufficient. Jesus' church, being the hope of the world, is because Jesus is sufficient. Don't let anything else take you away to some new thing to add to or detract from these widely accepted fundamentals of the Christian faith. Fifthly, when, when people get hooked into these extreme Christian groups, or they often have cultic and Gnostic tendencies, conceited spiritual pride comes over them. We can be proud of Christ. Don't let that be about us. Let it be about him. Millions of Christians have been badly hurt by false teachings or wrongly prioritized truths and half-truths. So, be careful of anybody emphasizing half-truths that sound okay, but you're just not quite sure why there's something there, even if you can't pinpoint it. Sometimes we get a check in our spirit just to say, yeah, just, just leave that be. Just, just keep on the main game. And that's our seventh point. Wrongly prioritized truths. We have to be about a main game. Now, there's some new stuff and new different things that sometimes come in as a, a season going through the church. And if those things bring us to the main game and invigorate our, our life for serving God, wonderful and i say this particularly thinking of different teachings about the second coming of christ be careful because there's so many different things about the second coming of christ that may or may not line up with scripture they may or may not be a half truth but it's scripture's not very prescriptive and descriptive exactly on X, Y, and Z. 
And so, be careful in that whole field, but we all need a vision of the second coming of Christ. That means we're, in, we're passionate about the main game. We've got to be so focused on making disciples in the nations to the glory of the Lord because of our relationship with Jesus. So, we have to be growing biblical stability. We also, fourthly, and our last two points are a bit shorter, growing in our integrity. Verse 15 says that instead we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. Speaking the truth in love can be very brutal. In high school scripture, we would call it um, truth-mongering. If somebody is only focusing on truth, but not doing it in a loving way. Yet speaking lovingly without truth is hypocritical. Or another way of saying that would be morally lying. Lying so that you make people feel better. Or so that with some sort of reasoning behind your head, but it's still just lying. Truth and love go together. The truth must be presented in love. When it is, it has the power to facilitate spiritual growth in Christ and inspire people to forsake sin, pursue holiness in both attitude and conduct. A mark of real maturity is the ability to be able to share the truth with your brother and sister in Christ and to do it in love as you consider their best interests. Solomon in Proverbs says, Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, Better is the open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy's but an enemy multiplies kisses. Now, a great example of people being able to speak truth in love in my life has been Pastor Steve. We had a great chat driving back from Nelson's Bay on a couple of days ago that hurt that I don't want to hear all the time, but I need to hear because I know it is truth. For my life coming from love. If you don't have people around you that have the wisdom and the relationship to speak truth into your life, even though it might be a wound of a friend, we've got to do something about this. And that's a perfect place to plug grow groups. You've got to find a way of creating those relationships instead of always You've got to give your, your pastors and your leaders permission to say, I want you to speak truth into my life, even if it'll hurt me for a time. The best way for that to happen is through a decent relationship. So find ways of building those relationships so that they can speak truths to you and in time and in a loving way you can speak truths to them. Our motive must always to be, build a per- be to build a person up and not to tear them down. As love always unites, whereas selfishness invariably divides. Sensitively speak the truth in love to each other when we really need to. And if we are courageous in this, we will rapidly grow in integrity. So, Jesus' church is his Christ-like family, which is growing in integrity. 
And lastly, Jesus Church, as his Christ-like family, is growing in our interconnectedness with other Christian followers. Verse 16 says, He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing full and full of love. What a fantastic picture of a vibrant, spiritually healthy church and growth that happens so naturally when we are aligned to the transformative truths of those preceding 15 verses in Ephesians 4. Paul is reminding us that together we can obey and serve God more fully than any one of us can do alone. Everyone has to come to some God-directed special work, has some God-directed special work to do that enables each other to function and flow in the grace and to reach their full potential in Christ. Never overestimate what you can do alone or underestimate what we can do together as Christ's family. The sum total of all of us is much greater than our individual parts. Finally, the God-given, insightful and powerful unity, ministry and maturity truths in Ephesians chapter 4 4, will help us follow God's plan for this church, which is to be as one, inspiring faith, imparting hope, and expressing love. Through them, we will individually and corporately grow from strength to strength. When we are fully yielding to having loving relationships with everyone and actively pursuing unity who are releasing the ministry gifts to find a service expression in the church family, we are doing ministry and mission the Jesus way. There will be no limitations to what the Lord can do through us and his church will grow in Christ-likeness. This is why I believe that Jesus' church is the hope of the world. Amen.